You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. A judge in Boston has signaled he may authorize the extradition of two Americans to face criminal charges in Japan for their alleged role in engineering the daring escape of former Nissan chairman Carlos Ghosn out of Japan in a box last year. Former Green Beret Michael Taylor and his son Peter have not denied that they helped Ghosn flee while he was awaiting trial on financial misconduct charges, but they say their actions aren't crimes under Japan's penal code. Their defense attorney, Abby Lowell, told the judge that before the Taylor's case, the law has never been applied to someone who helped another person flee while on bail. Joining me is an expert on Japanese law, Mark Ramsier, a professor at Harvard Law School. So the attorney for the Taylor's, Abby Lowell, argued that under Japanese law, and he used the game of hide-and-seek, that to help someone hide, there has to be someone seeking. In other words, he argued that their actions weren't crimes under Japanese law. Can you explain that further, why they might not be crimes under Japanese law? It sounds like uh, they're saying, look, he was um, under uh, house arrest. I thought he had to stay um, in a limited sphere of places. If he's under house arrest, then nobody's looking for him because he's staying in his house. Um, and if um, nobody's looking for him, then you can't help anyone escape. This theory uh, strikes me as uh, a just downright silly. Helping someone um, escape um, who's committed a crime uh, is itself a crime. It's a crime in the U.S. It's a crime in Japan. Uh, and this would apply, for example, if you uh, have a friend who has just murdered somebody uh, and you keep this person in your house uh, or you pick him up uh, in your car and drive him to another state, um, that's, that's a crime. Uh, it's a crime here. It's a crime there. Um, my understanding of the Japanese statute is um, that's what it's about. Now, if you have somebody who has uh, been arrested uh, for a crime uh, and is being uh, told to um, he wants he uh, wants to get out of jail, uh, and so they let him uh, stay in his house, uh, provided that he has posted bond. Um, he is being held there because. He, they expect him to uh, come back and show up at trial. Uh, and uh, he's uh, actually, is he being uh, pursued? He's not being pursued. Um, although, as I understand it, the Japanese uh, police were watching his house uh, from multiple directions. And that's why uh, they had to be as surreptitious as they were in uh, transporting uh, going out if uh, you know, believing uh, what I, one reads in the newspapers. Um, so, does that the question, as I understand it, is whether that uh, fits the statute? Um, and you know, in um, it's, it's sort of basic uh, law that it's true here in the U.S. and it's true in Japan that the law says what a judge says it says. Um, and um, you know, Title IX covers uh, sexual assault. Uh, if you read uh, Title IX, I don't think you'll find a, a single sexual assault in it. But uh, it covers it, and it covers it because um, that's the way in which it's been applied. 
uh, and uh, if, uh, it would be a bizarre interpretation of a statute um, designed to prevent people from helping um, criminals escape from the police to say that, well, if you're um, if you've posted bond and you're sitting in your house uh, and then somebody helps you uh, run away, that that's not covered. Uh, they have, I gather. Uh, a uh, theory based on the, the language of the statute. Um, I, I looked at the statute and I didn't see anything that particularly supported their theory, but be that as it may, they have a theory. Uh, and it is that this uh, statute doesn't cover their case. Well, if that's the case, then the right person to decide this is a judge. Um, and they can present their theory and the judge can decide whether it applies or not. Uh, it would seem to me pretty bizarre to say that uh, the American judge uh, is the one who decides whether this uh, Japanese statute covers uh, the their case or not. I, I would have thought the proper place to make it is uh, in a Japanese courtroom. If these uh, men are extradited, then they're subject to the Japanese legal system, where the conviction rate, I believe, is 99%. Are the proceedings weighted in favor of the prosecution? No, I wouldn't uh, think so. Um, the, the, there are a couple reasons uh, why the uh, the conviction rate uh, is high. It depends on what you're counting. Uh, Japan does not have, uh, or at least until very recently, uh, did not have plea bargains. Um, and so uh, the way in which uh, the courts and the prosecutors handled uh, the vast uh, numbers of uh, cases per person was that uh, the defendant pleaded guilty uh, and uh, they went to the judge uh, and he or she uh, pleaded guilty and the judge gave a sentence and the sentences if somebody pleads guilty tend to be more lenient than one where the person uh, contests uh, his or her innocence uh, and um, that counts as a conviction. Uh, the so you, you you can see what's going on, right? I mean, there is an implicit deal. It's not an explicit deal, and uh, in any sense, but the implicitly, judges are more lenient if you confess. So if you figure you're going to be convicted, uh, you confess, uh, and you get a slightly, somewhat more lenient sense. In the United States, this would be counted as a plea bargain, uh, and so uh, the person would explicitly cut a deal uh, and. Uh, plead guilty and in exchange uh, would get a negotiated lighter sentence. Uh, and so there are, it is the two, a confession um, in Japan is not um, exactly the same as a, a plea bargain in the U.S., but there are um, very clear parallels. Um, and when you calculate a conviction rates in the United States, one typically throws out uh, plea bargains. Uh, but the functional analog in Japan is a confession, uh, and since that technically is a trial, uh, it doesn't get thrown out. And so that's uh, one way in which the uh, conviction rate in Japan is uh, one reason why the conviction rate in Japan is higher than it is here. Um, there's another, uh, which is uh, simply that prosecutors in Japan uh, throw out huge numbers of uh, people who are uh, forwarded to them from the police. Uh, they simply don't prosecute them. Uh, they 
um, it, they, they obviously interrogate the person. They talk to them. They talk to the, uh, the victims of the crimes. Uh, but uh, they're selective about who they uh, prosecute and uh, push through the, the system. Uh, and so uh, it will tend to be the more in, uh, incorrigible uh, defendants. It'll tend to be the people who've uh, committed the most heinous crimes. Uh, and uh, there are uh, huge numbers of cases where uh, if the prosecutor looks at it and looks at it hard and decides, you know, I sure think this person did it, but I'm not really sure uh, that the prosecutor will just say, uh, we'll just uh, try to make sure that the person understands the gravity of what he or she did uh, and the person will not be prosecuted. Uh, so there's a selection going on uh, and it's a selection at the level of the prosecutor in terms of who uh, the prosecutor chooses uh, to uh, to prosecute. And if the prosecutor is um, tending to select only the most uh, slam dunk uh, cases for prosecution, uh, then you'll end up with a very high conviction rate. Uh, what that misses are the uh, people who the prosecutor has chosen not uh, to prosecute at all. What about the conditions in Japanese prisons? During his incarceration, Gon complained about how he was treated and the interrogations by Japanese prosecutors. It's hard not to uh, chuckle uh, if the notion is, um, you know, are Japanese prisons more inhumane than American prisons? Uh, <laughs> anybody with any um, any sense would vastly prefer to be imprisoned in Japan than American state prisons. I mean, American prisons are brutal. Prisoners are not kept from each other. Japanese are, are uh, petrified of American prisons. Um, and uh, the Japanese constitution protects the right to an attorney, uh, as uh, does the American. Uh, the American courts interpret that to mean that you do not have to uh, submit to interrogation unless the attorney is present. Uh, the Japanese uh, Supreme Court interprets this to mean that you have a right to consult an attorney regularly, but you do not have a right to have the attorney present at your interrogation. And that seems to me a, you know, it's a, it's a plausible interpretation. It's not clearly wrong. Um, I would prefer to be in a system where uh, I could not be in, uh, interrogated unless my attorney was present. But, um, you know, it's not a particularly undemocratic or heinous sort of system to say that, uh, you can be interrogated without your attorney uh, as long as you have a, the right to talk to him or her uh, from time to time. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Professor Mark Ramsier of Harvard Law School. Teva Pharmaceutical Industries is fighting charges of conspiring with competitors to fix prices for generic drugs and allocate customers between competitors allegedly leading to at least $350 million in overcharges to patients in a little over two years. Teva says it's not guilty of the charges and refused to admit guilt when offered a settlement agreement by the Department of Justice, unlike five other generic drug companies who settled for a total of $426 million. Teva and other generic drug makers are also facing civil lawsuits filed by state attorneys general. Joining me is Bloomberg's David McLaughlin. Start by telling us about the charges against Teva involving three alleged conspiracies. 
Yes, that's right. Three, uh, three conspiracies uh, involving uh, different drugs. Teva is accused of colluding with three competitors to fix the prices for uh, generic drugs. And this is part of an investigation that's been going on for, for many years in the generic drug industry that resulted in charges against a number of companies. But Teva is definitely the, the most high-profile one to, to come out of the investigation. Does the government say how much the prices of the generic drugs were hiked by these conspiracies? Uh, they don't go into that much detail, and unfortunately the, the indictment doesn't have a ton of detail either, but the Justice Department said and when they announced these charges that consumers overpaid by about $350 million, you know, and this is over a period of, of two years. You know, we have some insight into the percentage increases of the drug prices from a separate lawsuit or several separate lawsuits that were filed by state attorneys general. And those cases allege price increases of, you know, in some cases, a thousand percent. You know, So really, really big increases as a result of this conduct. Was this, I'll call it an explicit conspiracy where they got together and said, you know, we'll fix the price to this? So the government says that, you know, in fact, you know, they explicitly agreed to raise prices and allocate customers and that this conduct, I think, generally happened over phone calls. The states also talk about some meetings, you know, like industry conferences and text messages. The, the state cases are, are more detailed in terms of all the contacts, but it's clear from, from those cases at least that there was a lot of contact between uh, regular contact between executives at these companies really across the industry where, you know, one company where basically the companies agreed that one company would raise price or not bid for a customer. And then when a, when an increase by the competitor was made, the other company would follow. So it was that sort of thing. And the state cases make very clear that this went on for years. There was tons of communication between the executives. What's Teva's defense? Is it saying it just didn't commit the crimes? Yes, Teva's CEO did an interview uh, with uh, my colleague Riley Griffin, and, and he said that the reason why the, the company did not um, agree to a settlement is because it looked into the the, the allegations and, and decided that it, it did not engage in, in price fixing. He left open the possibility that the company could settle at some point in the future, but at this point, it rejected a settlement offer that uh, the Justice Department offered. We, you know, we reported that that agreement was a, was a deferred prosecution agreement, which would have essentially suspended the charges, but would have required the company to admit wrongdoing, and that would have exposed the company probably to some very big damages in, in the private litigation that's ongoing. So that's one of their their fears. And so the CEO said, well, we didn't uh, engage in this, so we weren't going to, to take that route. You know, and that's surprising because most of the companies so far have agreed to DPAs, all except one. So really, Teva is only the second company to reject a DPA. The others there have been five of them, five other companies that have agreed to CPAs and have paid money to settle with the government. Are those five other companies cooperating with the government? I mean, 
they say that they were involved in a conspiracy with Teva, and Teva says no, they weren't. Would they testify against Teva in court? Yeah, so the DPAs require their cooperation. That's just a general requirement for entering into one of these agreements. So their executives could testify. The indictment refers to numerous cooperating witnesses that are working with the government. It's not clear whether they're at Teva or at other companies, but those all could be potential witnesses if this does end up going to trial. I think that for Teva, you know, the real calculation here is that taking a deferred prosecution agreement would have required admitting wrongdoing. And so that potentially could be very costly. And so they might be calculating that it's just better to challenge the government or to go to court against the government rather than accept an agreement that could end up costing them a lot of money down the road. That's David McLaughlin of Bloomberg, who reports on corporate influence. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on Bloomberg Radio.